Emerald Podcast Series. Research that makes a difference. On this episode, I'm speaking to Dr. Jennifer Kuklenski, who is Professor of Business at Northland College in Ashland, Wisconsin. Her research focuses on how organizations can help advance the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. She is also the founder and COO of Free P Insights LLC, a private consulting firm that helps organizations strengthen their triple bottom line through positive impacts on society and the environment while growing their revenue. Welcome, Jennifer. It's really nice to have you on the podcast today. I really appreciate your time. Hi, Fiona. It's so great to be here chatting with you today. Yeah, so we're going to be talking about your book today, which is called Diverse in Organizational Development, Impacts and Opportunities. So obviously, this is a really important issue, very pertinent, very relevant for all organizations. But what this book does, I found, is that it goes a bit deeper into different types of diversity, which, you know, sometimes we normally think of that being confined to maybe race, gender, or sexuality. I'd be really interest if you would talk me through these sort of different aspects of diversity? Yeah, um, absolutely. So if we look through the research, we find that there are hundreds of definitions of diversity, and they range from very narrow to very broad in scope. Some organizations do simply consider diversity in terms of race or gender, Some extend to sexuality, as you noted, and others yet include everything you can think of that makes people unique, like hometown, marital status, or number of children. So if we're trying to develop, you know, inclusive organizations, we need a much stronger and useful definition of diversity. The very narrow definitions don't go far enough. But sort of the we are all diverse approach to diversity is also not very useful in helping us create inclusion. So the best approach to understanding diversity in organizations is to focus on distinctive categories that have persisted over many years and that have had a prevalent social consequence or prevalent social consequences that influence employment in a given country or region. So when trying to define these social identity groups, organizational leaders should focus on the consequences of belonging to certain groups, especially in terms of potentially beneficial or harmful employment outcomes. And so I find that this definition really addresses the reality that there are various groups within specific social contexts that include people who not only view themselves similarly, but also have shared experiences in terms of societal treatment, whether that is positive or negative. And this treatment and and these shared experiences help them construct social identity. So this definition, right, this understanding of diversity that I've developed in the book also acknowledges the fact that organizations don't exist in a vacuum and that societal treatment of distinguishable groups impacts the way people are treated in the workplace. And finally, this understanding of diversity allows us to look a bit deeper at what I call the layers of diversity. And I think this is probably what you're talking about in the book, where I'm talking about these levels of diversity. 
So in the book, I use a tree metaphor to explain this. Some practitioners use an iceberg metaphor, but and maybe you're familiar with that. <laughs> yeah, it's more common. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. A lot of them. And that's the way I learned. I learned the iceberg metaphor. But I prefer the tree. And I like visuals. I like components that are creative that help me understand, you know, our complex world. And so, you know, for me, the, the iceberg just wasn't capturing the complexity of diversity. And so I like to use this tree metaphor and I'll explain why. So a tree like an iceberg has two dimensions, that which is observable or above ground and that which is unobservable or below ground, like an iceberg would have, you know, above water and below water. And so the observable diversity characteristics are what I call explicit or revealed. And they might include age, gender, ethnicity, accent, physical disability, you know, just to name a few examples. And then the unobservable or what I call implicit or unrevealed diversity characteristics may include things like national origin, sexual orientation, education level, religion, or mental disability. So the trunk, the branches, and the leaves on the tree are fully revealed. We can see them, and we can easily draw conclusions or make judgments about them. We can say they're pretty, or we can say they're ugly, or that we can say they're red, like this time of year in autumn. But, you know, we might also determine the tree is beautiful or the tree is dying, right? We can make those determinations based on what we see. The root system usually isn't revealed, and although we know it's there, we don't know exactly what it entails. We don't know how deep the roots go or how wide they spread. And similarly, people tend to draw conclusions about someone based on their exposure to the explicit or revealed level of diversity, not realizing that often, and actually most often, the implicit or unrevealed level tells us much more about the person. And the reason that I like the tree metaphor and not necessarily the iceberg metaphor as much is because With a tree, you can sometimes see the roots, and sometimes you can't see the leaves, like in the winter when they fall off. So just like with our levels of diversity, our explicit and implicit levels of diversity aren't constant. For one person, those characteristics may be revealed, and for another, they may not be as easily revealed. And so what I discuss in the book is that, you know, we have to be really careful about making judgments, especially about those things we can see, but also recognizing that there are things we can see for some people and some people might identify with that same social identity and we can't see those characteristics. And so, you know, the moral of the story is not to make judgments on, you know, things that we can see or assumptions about things that we can't see. I love I love the tree metaphor. It makes so much sense. And you're right, the iceberg one is more common. You often see an iceberg metaphor in organizational studies anyway. You know, the things you do see about the organization and the things you don't see about the organization. But I do really like the trees. It's a very similar metaphor, but it has differences. And that was a fantastic explanation of these different types of diversity. You know, say the ones that aren't always obvious, the ones that we can't see unless, you know, you knew that person or they were willing to, you know, maybe open up to you. It's really fascinating. Thank you, Jennifer, for that. I understand that you have a research background 
in sustainability. So what role can diversity and inclusion within an organisation play in an organisation's sustainability strategy? What's the link there? Yeah, so I appreciate you asking that question. This is something that's really important for me to convey to organizational leaders because, you know, I teach sustainable business. So, you know, my MBA is in environmental management and sustainability. And when I talk to organizational leaders or even when I talk to my students about sustainability, most of the time what comes to mind for them is environmental sustainability or environmental challenges. And that's not to say that environmental challenges aren't important. (laughs) Certainly we know they are. But holistic sustainability means addressing all three pillars of the triple bottom line, people, planet, and profit, or if we're a nonprofit organization or an educational institution, revenue. So first and foremost, inclusion is inherently written into the sustainable development goals, although not explicitly stated. Goal 10 seeks to reduce inequalities, for example, both within and across countries. And reducing inequalities and inequities is an important part of inclusive organizational development. Reducing gender equalities is another sustainable development goal, which again is integral to developing inclusive cultures. Additionally, diversity and inclusion can be a driver for sustainability in several ways. And this is something that that I touch on a lot when I talk to organizations about holistic sustainability. Diversity and inclusion, if done right, can contribute to an organization's social bottom line by, as mentioned, addressing inequities and inequalities that persist perhaps throughout the organization as well as society more broadly. Inclusive organizations also create what we call psychological safety, in that truly inclusive cultures encourage people to bring their whole selves to work, including their unique personalities, their values, and their vulnerabilities. So because of this, people are more motivated and productive, and this type of psychological safety at work can boost mental health. So even if we're only concerned with the financial bottom line, which arguably is a mistake in this triple bottom line era of business. Um, But even if we're only concerned with the financial bottom line, this added productivity and well-being will help the organization perform better. But diversity and inclusion, if we look at the research, it also drives other pillars of sustainability. And so in terms of the environmental bottom line, One thing that we know for certain is that we will need bold strategies and innovations to address the challenges posed by climate change, which is our primary environmental concern globally, although of course it's not the only environmental concern that exists. But that boost in innovative thinking, idea generation, and problem solving will help organizations address the realities and risks posed by climate change and will help them come up with better solutions in terms of mitigation and adaptation. Additionally, some research suggests that diversity and inclusion can help with organizational flexibility, since working with a diverse group of people requires us to be more culturally flexible. A diverse workforce is more prepared to flex when necessary. And if there's anything we've learned from the pandemic, It's that organizations that can flex in times of crisis are the organizations that will survive. 
<laughs> yeah, indeed. <laughs> yeah, right. So we we know this now. If if we didn't know it before, we know it now. And so the risks posed by climate change, which you know are very real and are happening now, will require flexibility and inclusive cultures can help us, you know, get us there. And so the other thing that diversity and inclusion does for sustainability is inclusive organizational cultures, again, if if they're truly inclusive have been linked to higher levels of cultural intelligence among employees. And cultural intelligence helps us work better with people from a diverse range of backgrounds and societies, as well as social identities. And so advancing the sustainable development goals is going to require an unprecedented level of partnership and collaboration with a diverse range of groups, organizations, and stakeholders. And so higher cultural intelligence can help us work across borders, communities, and even within our own diverse communities as they become increasingly diverse to tackle the world's most pressing problems. And then also in terms of, you know, profit or revenue, diversity and inclusion can help us access new markets, you know, strengthen corporate governance and find and keep better talent, which all contribute to a stronger financial bottom line. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, what one of the sort of biggest costs for organizations can be its turnover rate and retention. You know, the, the costs that it takes when someone leaves an organization, just obviously like the financial cost of, you know, having to, to pay to advertise for that role, to hire someone new, but you, you lose knowledge as well, which is a currency in many ways. Really great answer there. So you sort of touched on this a little bit, actually, but what benefits does an inclusive culture bring to an organization? Like, so you've you've touched on this quite a bit already, but I can't think of any downsides to an inclusive culture for an organization. So what what are the top benefits apart from obviously strengthening that bottom line, that triple bottom line? So this is what, when I work with, when I do some consulting and I work with organizations, oftentimes leaders will, you know, one of the first things they'll ask me is, you know, how is this going to contribute to our success? So in the book, I, you know, first and foremost, make a moral argument, right? If we've learned anything through the pandemic and from, you know, even before the pandemic, we know that there are social justice groups that are holding organizations accountable for their contributions to injustices that we experience socially that that certain groups have been experiencing you know for a good part of recent history and and beyond and so you know there is this moral argument <laughs> for diversity and inclusion that should not be overlooked but at the same time there is a business case for it and i spend an entire chapter in the book breaking down the benefits of inclusive cultures And so it's important to know, first of all, that diversity itself will not necessarily benefit an organization. Actually, research shows that poorly managed diversity initiatives can lead to worse outcomes. So in order to reap the benefits, so to speak, of diversity, an organization really does need to focus on that inclusion piece. But of course, you ask me, what do inclusive cultures you know, bring us? And so um, definitely, if, if we can get inclusion right, which unfortunately, many organizations don't, but if we can get inclusion right, well-managed diversity and inclusion in- initiatives can add value to organizational success through increased creativity and innovation, improved problem-solving, 
greater organizational flexibility, greater access to new markets, which I had mentioned before, and improved attraction of top talent, like like you just mentioned, is really important, right? Keeping, attracting, and then keeping that talented workforce. And so in the book, I, I break down what some of these you know, studies show, and, and it's really quite fascinating. I think that some of the most fascinating findings about diversity's benefits have to do with decision-making and problem-solving. So people of diverse backgrounds have different cognitive tools and resources avail- available to them. And when combined with other people's unique tools and resources, they tend to find more useful solutions to problems and organizational needs. And so actually, if we sit down and, and look at the data, homogenous or non-diverse groups tend to outperform diverse groups initially. So if an organization is just starting to diversify, they're actually likely to see some productivity decreases in the near term. But after people of diverse backgrounds learn to interact with each other, communicate with each other, because of course, communication is one of the barriers of an increasingly diverse workplace. So once people get past some of those barriers, they tend to arrive at much higher quality decisions. And some research has found that when people are put into diverse groups, and this is what I really loved (laughs) finding in the book, is that they usually think more critically about alternatives because they expect to have to more critically defend their ideas or perspectives. Mm. Yeah. So when people are in a group of people that they consider to be like them, they actually don't prepare their arguments as well for a certain position because they just assume that there's going to be this sort of agreement among each other. And that's not to say that there would or wouldn't be. So it, it just has to do with the sort of mental preparation for defending their ideas. And so when people are put into a diverse group or a group of people that you know they perceive there's a number of people who are different than them, they're going to sort of prepare for their argument, which leads to, you know, better research for whether the argument is good or not, right? Whether the idea is is strong. And so diversity can lead to greater levels of divergent thinking, which in strategy is really important to have. You know, I always tell people in strategy, you want sort of that devil's advocate to use that phrase, you know, from the organization on the strategy team. You want someone who's going to challenge the ideas that are coming forward. And so diversity, you know, can help with those conformity pressures as well as avoid groupthink. And exposure to these types of situations, which requires people to, you know, routinely consider perspectives of people with different cultural, linguistic, or experiential backgrounds, may also help them develop the ability to be flexible and open to new ideas, experiences, and ways of doing things. And so in this way, diversity really proves to be, you know, an engine for innovation, creativity, and problem solving. And some of the research, some of the most fascinating research I have um, referenced in the book is from Professor Scott Page of the University of Michigan. And I'm assuming that your your listeners, you know, are readers. And if they're listening to this podcast, they've maybe heard of Scott Page's book, The Difference. But Page has done some really incredible statistical analyses of this phenomenon. And his research has found that time and again, diverse groups outperform non-diverse groups, regardless of the complexity of the problem. 
And so he found that even a group of what he calls the best and brightest will perform worse than a group of qualified individuals from diverse backgrounds. Now, of course, the individuals have to be qualified to be tackling that particular problem, but the diversity in in his way, right, actually is more important than IQ, if you will, or, you know, having the best educational background. But with all of that said, this only works if people feel like they can fully contribute their ideas. So if people feel excluded in the organization, this sort of idea generation and problem solving likely is not going to happen. And so when you say, you know, I can't think of any right downfalls of inclusion. No, there I can't think of any either, right? In- inclusion is really powerful, but diversity is not inclusion. And so just diversifying without inclusion is actually probably going to lead to worse outcomes. Yeah, that's that's such a true point. I think it's, you know, become quite common. The saying is, you know, diversity is being invited to a dance, but inclusion is being asked to dance, right? right? So mm-hmm. yeah, that's just one sort of like, you know, analogy that I, I like about diversity and inclusion and that just sort of, you know, paints it quite clearly for me um I said you can have all the diversity there is but if you're not including those people then there's just no point is there really no I mean there there really isn't I mean aside from some sense of getting people into jobs where maybe they were you know discriminated against in the past or excluded um, in terms of organizational success diversity is part of the key but it's not the the key itself yeah, that's right. It leads us um, really well into like my next question, actually. I really liked in the introduction of the book that you said, you know, a strong organizational culture doesn't necessarily mean an inclusive one. I mean, which is so true because you can maybe look at like, you know, a very sort of long established organization that's got very traditional values and, you know, the, the board of that organization might just be all the same gender, the same ethnicity, etc. even though it will have a strong culture because it's a long-standing organization. And that was such a good point you made. What type of organizational culture is needed to be inclusive? Yeah, so that's that's absolutely correct, right? A strong culture does not mean inclusive. And in fact, many organizations have a very strong but very exclusive culture. And so I think the first thing to keep in mind is that all organizations have a culture, either on purpose or by accident, which is to say that organizations like societies develop their own unique value systems, rituals, symbols, and language. Gert Hofstede, who conducted one of the most expansive studies of culture and who you might know continues to influence our understanding of organizational culture, Gertofsky defined culture as the unwritten rules of the social game. And so it's it's that social glue, that social adhesive that holds an organization together by providing standards for employee behavior. And so the stronger an organization's culture, the more behavioral expectations are internalized without the need for formal guidance or detailed policies. So in the book, I outline three stages of inclusive organizational development. 
In the most exclusive stage, which I call the dominating stage, organizations tend to have very strong cultures, but they are cultures that perpetuate one privileged group's perspectives and values. And so a strong culture that supports bias, condones prejudice, or overlooks discrimination can undermine strategic diversity initiatives. Even in organizations that I call assimilating, so they're in the assimilating stage of inclusive organizational development, despite supporting the differences that diverse employees bring to the workplace, they still expect newcomers to adopt the dominant group's culture or the historically privileged group's culture. And so in this sense, strong organizational culture can actually become a liability because it effectively eliminates the benefits associated with diversity as newcomers assimilate to the organization's core culture. And so organizations that truly capture diversity's benefits must create a culture where the diversity of knowledge, perspectives, and practices brought to the organization by different cultural and identity groups actually shapes their operations, management systems, and strategy. It's a culture where members of all groups feel included, valued, and able to make equal contributions to organizational success. And so in such a culture, the diversity of organizations and their surrounding communities is reflected at all organizational levels, including top management and corporate governance, demonstrating equitable participation from everyone. And so in this stage of inclusive organizational development, organizations may adopt best practices from multiple cultural backgrounds, or they may fuse different cultural practices to form new, innovative best practice that fits its unique organizational needs. And so the type of culture needed for inclusion also is one that can foster a shared sense of identity and purpose around which employees can unite. Um, Unfortunately, very few organizations have reached this level of inclusive organizational development. Thank you. It's not a quick fix, is it? Exactly right. There's just no magic wand for turning an organizational culture into a very inclusive one overnight. There's work that has to be done there, right? Absolutely. You know, one thing that anytime I start like diversity and inclusion training with an organization or if I go in and do a diversity and inclusion audit, right, or anything like that. And even in the book, I talk about it, you know, diversity and inclusion organizational development is an ongoing process. There's never going to be a point when an organization or organizational leaders can say like, yeah, we've made it, we've arrived. It is an ongoing process. That's why we call it an organizational development process, right? And part of organizational development, you know, it's a continuous process. Diversity is complex. Societal's understanding of diversity is always changing. Things that we cared about 20 years ago in terms of diversity maybe aren't the primary concerns now. So, you know, there's just, there's never going to be that point that you can say you've learned it all when it comes to diversity and inclusion. But at the same time, you know, there are real things, right? Tools, techniques, um, programs, policies, planning that you can do to create an inclusive culture, which of course I talk a lot about in the book. 
this is like one one question which is sort of very relevant to to our times right now and this this is quite an open-ended question so if you don't have an answer like it's fine but do you think it has been easier for an organization to be more inclusive when people have been working remotely in short no (laughs) so i actually find it to be far more difficult to create inclusion in remote workplaces So organizational leaders should keep in mind that, you know, diversity, like we talked about before, doesn't equal inclusion. And remote work allows organizations to reach a much more diverse talent pool, which if they're hired, will make the organization much more diverse. So, you know, that's one of the benefits that I'm hearing a lot of organizations you know, speak about when they say we're, we're going to transition our, our workforce either entirely remote or, you know, 70% of our workforce will be remote or 50% or whatever it is. And we're going to be able to reach these more diverse talent pools because people won't have to move here physically to work for us. Um, and so it's great because it will make an organization more diverse, but, you know, getting people from different backgrounds and with different social identities is just the first step towards inclusion. So creating that shared sense of identity, purpose, and belonging around an organization's mission, vision, and values is what actually creates an inclusive organization. And this is harder when people are working separately. So with remote workplaces, organizations need to be much more deliberate with their rituals, symbols, and language if they're trying to create inclusion in the remote workplace. And this will be important also as the nature of work, like you had mentioned, changes more and more and workplaces are becoming more remote or virtual. It can be done. So that's not to say that we can't create an inclusive culture with a remote workforce. We absolutely can, but it needs to be a bit more intentional. Actually, this is something that I've got an online workshop that teaches leaders and managers how to, you know, have an inclusive remote workplace through my company. And listeners are welcome to reach out to me if if they're interested in this. I do have a pre-recorded version of this workshop available as well. But you know, there are very real ways and, and they're not incredibly difficult to create that inclusive remote workplace. But in short to answer, or maybe that wasn't that short, but to answer your question, no, I don't think it's easier to create inclusion remotely. Yeah, I I never said it was an easy question. (laughs) (laughs) It's just obviously, you know, like sort of a sign of the times. Interestingly, I was speaking to someone last week, and it's very early in their research, but they're starting to already see a pattern of organizations who offer hybrid working, you know, where you can be there or you can be at home. And they're already seeing that a larger proportion of men are the ones that are returning to the office. And it's women, especially women who have children or care responsibilities who are opting to stay at home. And I just thought that was very, very interesting research and how that's going to sort of pan out for organizations and you know for for being visible within an organization is really interesting but so it's very early days I just was yeah very interested by those insights yeah you know that I've come across that as well you know just kind of in like you said this is the very early (laughs) stage of this remote workplace era but that 
I think will be a real challenge for organizations to tackle. You know, one of the things that I talk about in the book is is the fact that those informal systems and you know, informal information networks are so important for inclusion. Dismantling those informal information networks is one of the things that organizations have to do. So if you've got some people who are remote that you never see face to face, and you've got others who are in person, it is human nature to gravitate towards the ones that we physically see. And so, you know, the question will be, what do these organizations do to ensure that it's not the person you see at the water cooler who gets the promotion or gets to go to the conference or gets, you know, the professional development funding. You're absolutely right that that's going to be a very important thing for organizations to watch if they want to create inclusion in this hybrid workspace. Yeah, I think it's something that certainly has to be monitored quite, you know, quite significantly by those organizations that are you know, wanting to be inclusive. Thank you for that. So could you tell me a bit more about your firm, 3P Insights, and what it does? Again, you've touched on this about with your consultancy, but if you could just go in a little bit more detail, that would be great. Sure. So I am a full-time professor at Northland College, like you had mentioned, but as my role, I guess, at Northland became more prominent. And as more and more people are starting businesses, you know, we're kind of in this like side hustle era of business. And so we've got a lot of business owners, uh, many of which are women who are starting these side hustles. And I had a lot of small business owners or, you know, startups coming to me, as well as like some other higher ed institutions and even some, you know, larger businesses that were starting to, you know, ask me for help. So either they wanted help with business planning or they wanted help with training. And so I started the company sort of in a response to to that need that I was, you know, getting. And so I thought, okay, I really need to kind of put all of these things, right? All of these services that I can offer related to sustainable organizations under one umbrella. And so through that, 3P Insights was born. And through my company, I provide training, coaching, and support services um, for mostly either for-profit businesses or nonprofit organizations. But given my background in higher education, I also do you know, quite a bit of training and speaking for colleges and universities as well. But it's definitely not, you know, a full-time venture because I do have a full-time job. And so yeah. <laughs> I sort of support, you know, organizations as as I'm able and as the need arises. But interestingly, so when I started the business, I was offering virtual monthly seminars and workshops that any organization could register their employees for. And so my thought was, well, I'm going to create this kind of virtual professional development you know, opportunity so the organization doesn't have to hire an outside consultant. They can just you know pay and have the person attend. And it, it was relatively affordable. But as soon as I started, well, about three months in to, to offering those monthly seminars and workshops, I had people messaging me and emailing me wondering if I had a membership program. So they wanted, you know, just to pay a one-time fee or whatever, and they could attend these workshops. And I didn't have one at a time, but I had thought about starting one. And so I took some time to think about what exactly I would want that to look like. And last July, I launched the 3P Impact Club. And this is really a, a professional network or, you know, community for purpose-driven business owners or professionals, I do have some nonprofit leaders who are in the club 
And I host a monthly workshop that all members can attend live or they can view on demand. And I bring in, you know, other experts. We, we actually just had a workshop this week and I brought in a branding expert from Canada. And we talked about, you know, how to find your purpose in business and how to align your business with the sustainable development goals. And so every, every month, you know, people can learn through this. And then I offer bonus webinars. So about every other month on average, sometimes it's every month, I, I do like an additional webinar to kind of build off of the workshop information or, you know, a member might reach out and say, listen, I really need some help with this. Like, could we just do a webinar on that? And so I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll create the webinar for them. And it, of course, is accessible to everyone. And, you know, this, these workshops and webinars are really sort of my passion project to help business owners, especially small and medium-sized business owners that don't necessarily have the resources, you know, to pay high amounts of money to learn this stuff, but, you know, to learn some of these sustainability-related business topics so they can, you know, grow with impact, but also just learn some of these management topics more broadly. A lot of people who start businesses have no business education, and so they need a little support in branding or marketing or grant writing, right, financial planning, things like that. And so, you know, the workshops and webinars are, are kind of a blend of here's going to help you, you know, become a more sustainable business, and this is going to help you just stay in business. <laughs> so these are just essential business skills you need. Or here are some new trends, right, that can help your business stay afloat or stay competitive or grow, you know, whatever it is that that you're looking for. And so I, I do both now. So I, I, you know, again, it's it's not a full time gig, right? I have a full time gig, but <laughs> yeah. This is kind of my way of, you know, being able to support um, small and medium-sized enterprises or nonprofit institutions. And I still do the consulting work as well. So, you know, I still do speaking engagements and, and things like that. But this club is really growing. And so it's it's becoming a pretty cool thing, actually, a pretty cool community. That that is cool. How did you actually find the time to write the book then? In between, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing, right? So I spent a year and a half writing a book, and that was my you know free time. And so now I'm working on the business a little bit in my free time. Um, but yeah, so the the book it was incredibly time consuming. I think I actually wrote it in eleven months. If if you remember. Yeah. So, it, you know, it took a lot of time, but, you know, part of our job at colleges and universities is to do research. And so, you know, this really complemented my research agenda at uh, Northland. And I do have plans to kind of move more into the holistic sustainability research a little bit more broadly for maybe my next book, if I have one, which I think I probably will. But this book actually complemented the research agenda I had at the time really, really well. At Northland. And so we have some time in our, our day, although I'm finding that we don't have a lot of time for research. And so a lot of that happens on weekends or on, you know, during our, our breaks. Yeah, no, I absolutely get that. I mean, you, you did a fantastic job writing the book. It is a great book. There'll be a link to it on the page that the podcast is on and in, in the transcript, of course. Um, you did a fantastic job of it and, you know, very happy to have it published here at Emeralds, really am. So, yeah, if you, you do find some time within your mad schedule to write another one, you know, we'd be, we'd be absolutely delighted to have you again. That brings us to 
the end of our podcast. Jennifer, I want to thank you so, so much for your time. It was an absolute pleasure to speak to you today. I've learned, I've listened. It's, it's been really good. And this is such going to be such a valuable podcast for our listeners. And I'd encourage anyone who is in an organization to listen to this. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, Fiona. It was a pleasure being here. Um, I, you know, I'm really excited about the book. It's been a pleasure working with you through the process, and it's just awesome to be able to chat with you about it. Absolutely, likewise. All right, thank you, Jennifer. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Emerald Podcast. The full transcript is available on the website, as well as more information about my wonderful guest, Jennifer Kuklanski, who I'd like to thank again for joining me. And my thanks also to Alex from This Is Distorted for the editing of this podcast. Mm-hmm.